Remember the good old 1980s When things were so uncomplicated I wish I could go back there again And everything could be the same Hi, my name's Medjur and I'm the singer from Ultravox. Hello, my name's Chris Cross and I play bass in Ultravox. Hello, my name's Warren Cam, I play drums in Ultravox. Hello, my name's Billy Curry and I play keyboards and violin in Ultravox. Anatomy of a song, Vienna. Ultravox. With Billy Curry. We walked in the cold air. Breath on the window pane, lying and waiting. A man in the dark in a picture frame, so mystic and so food. A voice reaching out in a piercing cry, it stays with you until. Hello and welcome to 80sography and an anatomy of a song episode. I haven't done one of these in a while and to be honest I wasn't meant to do it this time either. A bit of background to explain. So I got in contact with Billy about a year ago. Originally the idea was to do an anatomy of a song. I wanted to give Billy the choice of which Ultravox hit to do and he chose him which is a great choice. But for uh, various reasons um, it didn't happen. So I got back in contact with him fairly recently and he agreed to do it again. So we tried again. And I had a new concept for an episode, which is provisionally called 8010, 80:10, which is a terrible name for it. And, but if I don't think of anything else, I'll go with this. If you've got any ideas, feel free to get in touch. For a bit. It's basically 10 tracks. I'm reducing my geography to 10 tracks because they can be very long. And it's for those guests that don't have a spare three hours to do it. You select 10, but it's not just the 10 biggest hits it'll be a mixture so it'll be at least one album track one b-side one live track one 12 inch mix and one video you get a full facet of, of the 80s music experience of making music in the 80s so that was the idea so we uh, started the interview uh, in 1980 talking about vienna and 30 minutes later uh, billy was still talking about vienna it's all good stuff so as he was talking i was thinking all right this isn't really going to fit this format this is I, don't have to edit this stuff down so as I stopped Billy and said look should we just do an, we can get an anatomy of a song episode out of this so okay if I just we chat for the 20 minutes on Vienna and then we'll take 5 minutes out of this and put it into the 8010 thing and just do the other 9 songs in an hour and then we've got the 2 episodes and he was up for that so that's fine so finished talking about Vienna went on to track 2 which was Fated Grey Visage and 20 minutes later we still talk about Fate to Grey I thought okay this 8010 concept is not going to work this time hey Billy are you okay if we do a my discography out of this we can get 3 episodes out of this he was up for it so, so we carry on talking for 3 and a half hours 
uh, in, in total. So about an hour in Vienna and two and a half hours on the rest of the 80s. The two-part mitography will be next season, which should be, be fun to edit and looking forward to that. But for now, we're going to focus on Vienna. Now, I, I didn't suggest doing Vienna because, to me, it felt a bit too on the nose to pick Vienna. Even though I consider it as, as regular listeners, well, now it's one of it's the first single ever bought. It's one of my three key tracks of the 80s. Um, so it so means everything to me. But this is great to be able to speak to Billy about you know, one of the key tracks of the 80s. So, so enjoy Billy Curry of Ultravox talking about Vienna. The interview starts now. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by the songwriting process uh, with the four of you. Is it fair to say that, generally speaking, over the course of Ultravox's time in the 80s, that you and Midge were the main songwriters, or would it depend on the song? Well, we were the main songwriters, and Chris added subtle bits, important bits, being that it was holding things up. That's funny when you think of Chris's personality. No, joking. Uh, He was quite a mad sort of guy to play bass, really. I mean, I'd got to know him really well. I didn't mean that as a a, a jab. What I meant was it is quite funny, someone like Chris playing bass, but the bass function is to hold things up, you know. Quite a lot of the time, so he played his part. But it was mostly me and Midge getting stuck in there. With um, I mean, Midge got took care of the the uh, lyrics more and more by himself. But at first, it was assisted by Chris and sometimes Warren, but mostly Midge. And so I, I let that be as it was, and I'd just say when I didn't like something. But overall, getting things started, I'd come up with music. I was always working on coming up with music and Midge would respond quite quickly. But then again, of course, you know what, you've got to have um, a decent feel to it. So Warren was incredibly important as well. And when Warren came up with something that stimulated me, I would, that would more chance of me coming up with an idea, but quite a lot of the time was a case of me and Midge banging our heads together. (laughs) I mean, it was, you know, it was interesting combination. We were, we were a good combination uh, and it, uh, it worked. It worked, you know, which was fantastic. I've got like three questions off the back of that. So um, do you have an example of when Chris made a contribution to a song? He said he's added these little bits or these little ideas sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're talking about uh, Vienna, I had this idea of doing a ballad and I came into the studio one freezing day in January at Easy Eye, just near Caledonian Road Tube Station. It was all very depressing. But I had this idea of doing a, a ballad and I'd laid it out, the key and the verse, and Chris was just sat, uh, just not sat, just stood next, quite near me. So every time he played a note, it nearly took me off my feet, so it was quite loud. And he just happened to go down at the end uh, to a B-flat. I'd put it in C, and I was like, oh, no. You know, we're looking for a chorus, Chris. How the hell, what the hell are you going down for? But I was wrong, because in his own world of, of creativity at that point, he started going from B-flat to F, which was quite a grounding, uh, strong thing. Doom, 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 doom. You know, it's a strong thing. Doom, doom, uh, B flat, F. Uh, but even then I was like, mm, don't know. But I added to it and turned it into, well, I turned it into a piece of music. I mean, to a certain extent, that tended to be my job as a mid- in the middle keyboard player. But I was also a viola player in an orchestra, so that has something to do with it. I was always kind of in the middle, coming up with the melodies and chord structures, 
and form. That was my thing. So I played along with it and, and, and it was going, it felt slow and I felt like it needed picking up. So I was starting doing a melody, which was dum, 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 da, 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 dum, 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 da, da, da. <laughs> that sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, so it picked it up, you know, on the right hand side, I was just doing single uh, chords like wum, 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 just like that with the high strings, but just like a, in a violinistic way, I tended to program the string synthesizers like in a violin, violinistic way, being a violinist. So it'd have a, not a full on front to it, but it had some release so that when you hit it, it, they rang a bit, you know, they, they rang the, the chords. They just didn't cut off straight away. So it, it lifted it. That's what I was trying to do, lift it. So we'd got that thing going. And then at the end, he did something else, which was something I would never do. Instead of going dum, 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 sorry, I'm singing my thing. He went B flat, G, B flat, G, F. So that's something I would just never do. But it works really well and it helps the vocals really well because for a short length of time, and instead of it just being B flat major to F, it does a quick sort of dum, 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 which is a, a G minor seventh. And that resolves it fully on F. I won't overcomplicate things, but what I was doing with this dum, 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 da, 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 I was changing the chords a lot as well. I was doing B major, G minor, D minor, F, a B flat major, G minor, D minor, F, you know, so I was changing the feel as well. So when it dropped at the end on F, it felt resounding and very right. Oh, right. Okay. Chris, we've gone to F now and uh, brilliant. It was still a big question mark until I thought, right. Okay. Cause we were playing it. Making pop songs to a certain extent, even though Vienna went somewhere else, because uh, I wrote that whole middle section, but it was still, as far as I was concerned, it was like, right, okay, let's bring the second verse in and see what happens. So I brought the second verse in on a low C on the uh, piano, because Midge had helped me. It was a, what's the word, reciprocal? Is that the right word? Yeah, he'd helped me. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he'd helped me with the piano, because I'd had problems with a piano sound in the 70s lineup, and he'd helped me manage to get hold of a good piano, like the Yamaha CP70, because he had contacts with the with the Yamaha in Milton Keynes. In fact, me and him went up there a few times. He hired a van. I was impressed he could drive. No. <laughs> and, and so I ate a bottom C, uh, which was, in, if anything, would drag it down, a bottom C would. But yeah, miraculously, it lifted it. I just couldn't believe it. It was like God. Because, I mean, I, I tended to think that I knew quite a bit about harmony and stuff. In fact, some people could think if they worked with me that I was a bit of a clever dick, like mm. classic musicians can be. You know, they can get on people's nerves. But I wasn't really like that. We used to have a laugh, you know. And it lifted it, and it lifted it because the actual verse wasn't the key of the song. So the key of the, the verse is actually in the fifth chord, uh, C, and what, what Chris made it be, the chorus, in F. So when Midge sings at the end, oh, Vienna, and it's in F, that's what gives it that release and power. And so that when you come into the second verse, it's done. You know, it lifts and, and, and in a ballad, for the second verse to actually lift rather than it feel a bit like it's dragging on or in some cases morbid if you're in a minor key, that's a real gift. So we really from that point felt we're onto a bit of a winner. That's that's Chris's one of Chris's main contributions. Well, that's, you know. a pretty, that's a pretty good one then. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, I wrote the whole of the music for Vienna and did the form. But for him to instigate the chorus, I mean, that's a big contribution. So, so would you have done the, the backing track 
would that have been completed before like midges work on the vocal melody and the lyric or would there be like you'd be doing both at the same time and you'd add a bit of lyric and i've got a bit for the chorus and then you work on the arrangement and the recording and then he adds a bit more i mean it's a patchwork sort of thing but it was good then because um this was early 1980 so we'd been doing a few things then in fact we'd been on tour we'd only just come back we'd been in america on tour so we'd been um we'd gone to america at the end of 1979 to get away from the uk fans to be honest uh and mitch was particularly wanted to do that so we could experiment a bit away so we didn't have the um magnifying glass on us especially when we were doing um uh, 70s uh songs like dislocation and quite much but anyway so there we were uh, and so by this point i've got a really good uh, memory not not of a visual memory of being opposite me she was stood opposite me chris was to my right and uh, warren i can't remember where he was <laughs> over to the left somewhere but midge was slightly by himself but directly opposite me and i instigated you know i just thought oh, do you want to have a go and he did. He started. It's a very delicate thing with singers, you know. I mean, it was quite delicate with John. You know, he, he tended to keep you out of it a little bit. To suggest something would have been a bit difficult. So we were on a new ground here because it was quite nice for me to be able to draw Midge in. And, and he started doing some things da, 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 in the verse, you know, da, 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 this kind of stuff, da, 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 you know. And uh, a few little lyrics coming out, and, and and that was that was good. And you know, sometimes you used to do that, and other times you wouldn't do, sing anything and just come back with it the next day or a few days later, having written it at home. So I can remember that. I had to talk to. Um, it's a complicated piece that because I had to talk. It was only later we we actually performed it uh, in uh, Electric Ballroom in Camden in something like March, in with all the other tracks to try and get a deal with uh, A&M, actually, and um, failed. No, And so that the middle section didn't have anything, any music, and I was just improvising in C major, you know, like, which was actually a bit boring, but a bit brave of me. But I had been improvising in a, in a band when I was 19, so I, I was interested in improvisation. I'd been in a band that was like doing jazz and blues, even when I was only 19. So... I did that, but it, it didn't set anything on fire. We knew we had to do something. And I remember Midge just coming in with the last chorus and it was all a little bit a bit deflated. So we knew we had to do something. And I just remember getting this idea. I think I was living down in Chiswick there, but I've got this distinct memory of traveling on a tube train and just thinking, I need to do something that picks the audience up and carries them faster and then comes to a climax and drops them very heavily in a euph euphoric way into the last chorus. I know it sounds a little bit um, like I'm... Sorry, it just <laughs> sounds like I'm being a bit big-headed here, but I, I, honestly, it was like that. I just got this idea that I could write a piece of music there, and, and luckily for me, I was with some guys that would listen, and uh, so I, I explained it, and I talked to uh, Warren who prepared the, the time changes on the 808 drum machine because I said I want to do a, a very classical orientated ralentando where you, you speed up, 
you know, so so when the piano goes dum 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 so it speeds up over a, a bar or two. Rallentando, it's called in, in classical, and he understood that. So I had to program that before we went into the studio, otherwise it'd take forever, cost a lot of money. So we we got that right, and also I wanted it to slow down Ritardando over quite a few bars four bars into the end chorus so that was the getting the backing track together it had to be programmed with the drum machine so when we went into the studio in april in st john's wood at rack studios st john's wood i was crashing there at a friend's place at golders green we knew what we were doing and that was it so we'd got something it was nailed even though we were doing something quite off the wall, you know, with speed ups and slowdowns. So when we were rehearsing it, uh, a lot of the parts were there. But because it's a long time ago, yeah, it wasn't actually, it wasn't uh, toured. And, you know, the, the last, like I said, the last the time we played it was at Electric Ballroom in something like about February, where it wasn't, didn't have a middle section, it wasn't complete. But we had the basis of the song, though, you know, the chorus and the verse. So that's very, very important. But because it was a ballad, it had to be presented, you know, and that's why I thought it needed this piece of music that would lift people up and carry them along. And so when we went into the studio... I remember being in this grand piano right at the back. It was a big control room. That's why we went, sorry, not control room, studio space. That's why we went there. So there was lots of natural ambience. And Connie was there, very rarely came out of his own studio. Uh, And so I was right at the back. I'm making some details here, but just to give you a picture, there was windows at the end, not into into anything too interesting back gardens and stuff so i was right at the back doing the piano and doing the middle section and doing the strings in the middle that was quite interesting you know i wasn't even sure what i was doing you know the strings in the i sort of knew what i was doing piano wise but when i did the string part uh, it was i was a little bit suck it and see you know try and sort it out because uh the chords were still changing so, so I'm right at the back here with, with this piano and doing it. For, for very fond memories, very exciting. But even then, I, I would, would like to say it does get a little bit confusing in that because Midge came up with this great cello part, you know, which which is this doom, 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 you know, under the violin, if you remember. Yeah, that really carries it along. You know, it works so well. That was a bit of genius. I took, I adjusted it, what, what it did to fit in with the chords, like when it went into F major, again, being a bit of a clever dick. And, um, you know, but it was fascinating because what that made me realise that um, the string part that I had to do sometimes was different chords than I really thought I was doing, I suddenly found myself moving into different territory. They weren't just straight minors chords, you know, they were sort of minors with um, sharpened sixths. So, you know, they can sound like um, an E minor with a flattened seventh and a flattened fourth. So you suddenly get into this feeling of the late 19th century, the kind of sophisticated chords that are going on uh, behind the violin solo. And, And that's why it suddenly becomes quite, well, sort of romantic, I suppose you could say. 
I mean, we didn't know that the whole thing was going to move into this direction, but it was just embraced in a very, very big way. But like I said, I have had the, the 24 tracks digitized, sent to me when we were doing the box set, which was very nice of Chrysalis. And I've listened to the string part and I could hear fully how I was struggling to understand the actual music that I was writing. I hadn't actually quite gra- grasped it, seriously. You know, there's some actual bum notes in there and stuff, you know, but I, I just didn't use it at that point. I brought the strings in a bit later, you know, where the violin goes, you know, that D minor, you know, where where the strings come in. So I'd got it together a bit by then. So it's a little bit like it was almost ahead of me, Vienna, really, you know. It was um, carrying us along. Yeah. It's quite a revelation what you just said. I've never really thought about that with the middle section is is the key to the song, really, the way it kind of speeds up. Because then it makes the end bit more dramatic with the crescendo. Yeah, more dramatic. And so when you've finished hearing the song and it calms down and there's the nice synthesizer just hanging there of the F that Midge did on his CP30, you know, it's calmed down, it's done something. You feel like, wow, I'm relaxed now, but boy, it's, it's been somewhere, you know. So it was, it, yeah, it was in, in, important. It was good, but I mean, it was so, I mean, it's all very well me saying I've got this idea, but I had to pick up people and carry them along, but I was with musicians that were capable of doing it. Chris Cross put a bit of humour into it uh, by doing some flicks on the bass. He had a funny little key that used to flick sometimes. It was it was a problem with his key. So I'd be going along, that one of his keys that we kept packing in. He was able to play it. And I like the way, because you remember, we're still sort of half, got one foot in the 70s here. So we're doing synthesizers with echo on. So Chris is using echo to do his duh and duh and duh and duh. Those are echoes. Duh, uh, the answers are echoes, a single echo to speed it up, you know. And uh, what was funny, I remember him doing it at Rack. And I was like, yeah, I like that, Chris, because it gives it a little bit of um, swagger. It wasn't too s- stiff straight back. Uh, it, because he kept slipping his, um, because it kept speeding up. We had subtle speed ups even when we'd gone into the speed up that Warren, such a number cruncher, was doing. So it was actually getting very slightly faster. And it was putting his single echo out of time. So it tended to sound a little bit like a third, a three rhythm. So it was a bit slow. So it ended up going almost like getting into reggae or something because he he used to listen to loads of reggae and so did I from being on Iron Records like Black Uhuru. And I'm not joking, when we were doing that middle section, we started to get a feeling of, like I say, okay, it's very classical, but it was like putting a little bit of uh, swagger about it, a bit of dirt, which I, I just loved. You know, this is someone who can understand the bass area. And and I've got a, a fantastic memory of being, at, when we took it over to Connie's to mix it, I've got a great memory of when the, the drum machine sped up to, which it just simply does, just do do I think it's fours on the floor. No, no, just one, like that. The A to A to eight, uh, the cube shape thing. I think it was. It might have been the one before. I can't remember. Uh, when we were mixing, the big moment then for the mix, where it could have all gone very, very wrong, was that I said to Warren that it's only going to work if we EQ out most of the bass on the uh, bass drum. 
because it's just not that kind of music, this middle section. And boy, that was a tense moment. But luckily, because we needed to hear the bass synthesizer more than the actual uh, bass drum. It just wasn't in that area of hearing a big bass drum. And so I, I EQ'd out most of the bass. So what you hear is that when it comes into that, it's a ch- ch- mostly the snare. But that that was a, a very tense moment. <laughs> no, I've got to say, I really want to hear a reggae version of Vienna. I hope someone's done that. <laughs> a what, sorry? A reggae version of Vienna. No, no, no. I want to hear that. I better exist. I'm going to... No, I mean, it, it wasn't going into to reggae. It's just that because Chris has got that uh, ability to put a bit of humour into it, you know, he's, he's got quite a bit of panache the way he plays bass. It just it was just a bit of luck the way that his, his echo started going into a da, a, da, a, da, a, da, a bit, almost like a da, 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 triplets, you know. So at what point did you realise you got something special here? We didn't, Mark, we didn't think it was anything special. Basically, it was just the other track on the album. Because we'd, we were in a, a feel of a whole project, because we'd done quite a bit of, we're touring, we toured it quite a bit in America and here as well, quite a lot in America. So we were doing gigs. It was a project that we could feel and play mostly bang down live. This was the only one that wasn't. So that's why we had these... Uh, difficulties to get through. That was the only one we had where something drastically had to be had to be changed. But I've got great memories of that as well. I mean, when Warren was doing the Simmons at the end, in the big climax, you know, and uh, we all enjoyed ourselves going mental, saying, "Right, let's have it a big crescendo at the end with cymbals and bang, crash, wallop." We we're enjoying ourselves, having a bit of a laugh. And of course, it was great fun to work with someone who was so into it, like uh, Connie Plank. Apparently, he said he, his dad played viola. He was a classical. The thing is with Connie, it, nothing phased going into the realms of classical didn't phase him at all. That's what really helped me. I didn't feel alone at all. I mean, he just really just made it pos- all possible, like almost normal. You know, it wasn't some weird thing we were doing, uh, but it was just once we'd got that. Uh, mixed. It was like, right, let's just do the next one. We didn't think about it at all because we were on a project, you know, the the uh, the album had all been written and so most of it was just banged down as we did it live, which is good really, you know. Yeah, so the first time you heard it in the studio, completed, you didn't look, all look at each other and go, wow. No, we didn't really. I, it was just because there are other things on it. I didn't realise how different it was. There were other things that I was very close to on it yeah, it was weird. I mean, when we finished with, by then, I'd already thought about joining it up. So when we were rehearsing um, American Promise, uh, not uh, was it called American? Western Promise. Western Promise, sorry, yeah. I, I managed, I sussed out a way to come out of the riff. Dum, 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 dum. That's my riff, by the way. And um, so it's a little bit as... It's quite hippie-ish, really, sort of crocky-ish. It's very crocky, yeah. yeah. And I just decided, came up with this thing of going... So we dropped on a bottom C, and Chris, and they all agreed with that, the band. Mitch looked a bit, mm, not sure, but, you know, he does think a lot, quite a bit, Mitch, before he let something through. But I respect that. And, uh, and then Chris added a... EMS to it so you got this great lovely lovely bass note and we kept that a long note of it and the, and the idea was then that we would um, 
join them together in the mastering, you know, the mastering process was very exciting because we were joining them together so that the EMS low bass would go underneath the beginning of Vienna, Vienna would fade up. Just like the uh, sequencer that would, that would come in at the end of um, Mr. X. So, you know, there's some interesting ideas we've got going there with that um, album. It's good. So the very fact that Vienna was the third single of the album, which, which seems crazy from the outside in, but obviously at the time, this is like a five-minute you know, epic ballad. It's not necessarily, you know, chart music material, is it? But when it was suggested as a single, was there, or what was the attitude towards that? Like, you might as well, it's a good track, let people hear it, as opposed to being a hit. Or was there a thought that, well, this could be the one that could, could break through? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, we, we thought that it could be, well, it was at a different point because our second single had... Uh, not exactly bombed, but not been successful passing strangers. And it was a fairly cutthroat label, Chrysalis. So, you know, we were looking on at the possibility of maybe getting kicked off the label if we'd just done an album that had got to number 14 and then disappeared. So, you know, it was took quite, uh, we had to think quite on our feet, really. Was this the right time to come out with a, a, a crazy bet where something it could be, could really take? Or it could just bomb and make things worse. So it was, a, we had to think about it quite a lot. And it was at that point when I realised that I had singled it out in retrospect, because this was a while after we'd finished the album now, that I had got a little bit uh, possessive of it. And so uh, when the guys were suggesting, Mitch and Chris, I think mostly, were suggesting putting it, thinking of it as a single, I was a bit like, uh, ooh, I don't know, I, I wouldn't like to have that one uh, slagged off and uh, bombing. You know, I, I, which was a bit silly of me, really, when I think back. But I had got a little bit possessive of it, uh, and but they, we were talking about the video age at that time, and we'd just done one with our director Russell Marquea, and that was very interesting for um, uh, passing strangers, and we and we got into this feeling, you know, this lovely time the nine you know 1940s and the black and white feel of it and it was like unfinished business so it was like oh this could make a, an incredible video to it as well you know so it, so we went went from there really to uh to try and persuade chrysalis to uh, think about it but first of all they were just like oh forget it it's just way too long it's a bit hard to remember now but um uh, we pursued the idea and uh, with Russell Mikey and, and we came up with some options of, of just getting on and doing the um, doing the video ourselves. It's all a little bit, uh, it does get a bit vague for me then, but I do remember uh, when it was released that we, we just immediately got this positive thing, which is what you hoped for, which was like, oh, bloody hell, this is different, this 
crazy. What's this all about? No, it's not not in a bad way, but oh God, everyone noticing it. But we had to do the video on our own costs. I remember, you know, struggling to do get that sorted out. But it was very good memories of doing the actual. Um, but it had it then had a life of its own and just took off, which was amazing. But it was still difficult because when we did Top of the Pops, it really pissed me off the way they uh, edited it. You know. Yeah, it went straight into the uh, violin solo after the uh, second chorus. So, <laughs> no, it's a long time ago, Mark, but I mean, I, I remember uh, jumping to pick up the vi violin, which I had on top of the keyboards to play the violin you know <laughs> I'm in on top of the pops and then looking back at it later and I'd, I'd stood jumped straight behind a pole and of course the the cameramen were a little bit slow and uh, they missed it it's sort of it's unusual someone picking up another instrument to, to play so the cameramen get caught got caught out we used to have quite a few laughs about that oh there we go again you know, Billy's playing his violin solo and no one can see him. <laughs> and then eventually, when it became a hit, they respected it and played the whole thing and so did the um, the, the radio stations. Was was there one moment when you noticed, wow, this is because obviously the first two singles, uh, one didn't get top 40, one sneaked in the top 40, so they mean massive hits. But was there a moment when you noticed that this was something was happening with Vienna? Oh, yeah, I, I really do. I mean, it was... Uh, they kept in touch. I mean, it was just like when I was working for Gary Newman only a few months earlier, the record company people would phone me up on Monday morning and tell me how much it had sold and various times through the week. That's what it was like then. It was all telephones. And uh, and that, I got a bit bored with that because I was very, very enthusiastic for Gary. But sometimes I'd think, bloody hell, I wish it was me. And then here we are a few months later and the, um, the lady from the, the – uh, the management office is phoning me and saying, Billy, it's sold 28,000 today. And, you know, and it was like, oh, wow, yeah, right. I do know about these figures because of working with Gary Newman. I know that this is going to go up into the top 10. And that was absolutely amazing. And then you hit, then eventually when you get more into it, you hear it, boy, oh, hang on a minute. We, we, we're in dodgy territory here now. <laughs> I'm only joking. It's just across those that area to get a full-on commercial success, you've got to have loads of people buy it, you know, to get – you can't be snobbish. You know, I mean, so so that was amazing. We just crossed, seemed to cross the board, and there was loads of people loving it, you know. Amazing. So when it got to number two – Yeah, number two. <laughs> <laughs> Am I allowed to mention Joe Dodd? That, that was – that was a lesson learned. Don't get too excited. I mean, God, you got to laugh when it only went to number two. Yeah, but it's who you went to number two behind, isn't it? It's like if you're if you're behind a, a great song, that's one thing. But what can you do about Joe Dolce? I mean, seriously. Yeah. Still at number two, one of the more excellent records around the charts: Ultravox and Vienna. Guess what? Hey, Number one, it's Joe Dolce. Here we go. Shut up, you bitch. Uno, two, three, four. When I was a boy, just about the eighth grade, Mama used to say, don't stay out late. 
with the better boys. Always shoot the fool, Giuseppe, going to flunk a school. That's my mama all of the time. Boy, to make me sick, all the thing I gotta do. I can't get no kicks, I got to follow stupid rules. Boy, to make me sick, just to make a lousy box. I got to feel like a fool. And the mama used to say all of the time, What's the matter, you? Hey, God, no respect. What do you think you do? Why you look so sad? It's not so bad. It's a nicer place. Ah, shut up your face. That's my mom. Big accordion solo with a little dance. Just a minute, I'll be right there. Yeah, well, that's it, really. That's what you're getting involved with. It's the fun of the pop charts. And it is fun, really. And it just came out at, just at that point, and it... Uh, shoved us out of the way it was a difficult time then i mean there was a john lennon thing as well because john lennon and poor guy had been shot just a few months early so there was the lennon jealous guy with um rocks music you know so there was a lot of competition uh yeah so it's funny i mean it, it's funny really but that's the kind of thing it is that's the chart thing it actually is that you've got to be, be prepared for that if you're going to get into that area and i certainly wanted to get into that area because i used to love I just wanted to get on top of the pops, <laughs> right in the middle of the punk thing where we're going out ripping people's heads off in some to some. There's a little voice in my head saying, I just want to get on top of the pops. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a pose, isn't it? Eh? Yeah. Do you have any good um, backstage encounters with the pop stars during your time with Ultravox? Yeah, I mean, in um, at, at uh, top of the pops, yeah. I mean, all sorts of people um, just trying to think about that meatloaf. Yeah, people... Bass player of uh, the Stranglers, he was a bit of a character. <laughs> I'm being nice now. Okay, right. <laughs> Diplomatic. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, you'd meet everybody there in this in this environment. So let's face it, it was a time. It was a, just a time gone by now. It's the same thing of that time. Everyone's trying to get it through the, the eye of a needle. So you've got all these different kind of acts thanking the lucky stars that they're on top of the pops. But, you know, there's... Um, God, there's uh, Shaking Stevens, and then uh, then there's Oz, and then uh, Dollar. Oh, I mean, God, come on! You know, it's just such a right mix. <laughs> you you just couldn't take yourself too seriously, but you had to do the best you can because everyone's watching this through this eye of a needle thing. You know, it's like you're the one in a million that gets on top of the pumps, so you you had to take it seriously, you know. If you didn't, if you if you sounded like if you looked like you were getting overconfident, they could definitely pull the rug from underneath you. It was quite vicious, so you had to be aware all the time. You know, it's it's a it, I mean, it's such a cliche to say, but it's a very cutthroat business. I mean, I remember well after Vienna, we came on and did. Um, Austin still, and that was so nice to just in summer, just just to come on and do Austin still without even thinking about it. Great feeling to do Austin still, and that went in the top ten. That was great. But when we did the second album, Syndrome, fifth album for mm. second for it, but you know it was like um, we came up with this quite experimental track, The Thin Wall, which is left field. I mean, I I wrote most of the music for that, but of course, you know, I have to say, God, it'd be nothing without the uh, vocals and also without the fantastically programmed drum machine and, and what have you, you know so i'm not saying it's my thing it's an ultravox track but i wrote when we arrived there with no ideas whatsoever except for a couple of ideas for songs i like the voice and uh, we stand alone but we got we got and written anything so i i went in and wrote that and i thought i'm just going to be quite off the wall just make it up off the top of my head the sun is on the vision's moving, 
So when we did that at Top of the Pops, it is quite off the wall. And at the end, it's got this everything thrown in, thin wall, everything going on, thin wall, blah, 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 everything else thrown in. And I, I looked and, and uh, not so anyone would notice. I was getting fairly uh, used to being in the camera by then. Don't forget, I'd done all those appearances with Gary Newman, you know, like bloody loads of them you know with our friends electric so i knew the whole thing about top of the pumps and i noticed that they were chopping and changing around the camera shots because you can see the light and and i thought oh they're uh, they're messing about a little bit here you know maybe they're not not taking us that too seriously but then when i watched the the the, the playback that did come across a little bit like we'd come off over a bit overconfident and it uh, didn't leave a positive uh, impression at the end. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, the, the little things like that, you know, you, you've got to be so on the case because the, the cameramen pick up on the vibe as well because they are making your performance. I'm not saying they were messing it up on purpose, but, you know, if they picked up a certain vibe from the music or the way we were moving, they can be reflected. That's interesting. So live live performance, obviously, Vienna is a song you have to play. Is there ever an albatross or was there always something you could find in it to play every time you had to? It was an albatross sometimes. It depends how heavy the party was the night before. <laughs> okay. No, so it, it was, I used to feel for Midge sometimes. He used to stand at the back ready to come forward to the mic when I was playing the long note on the ARP Odyssey. And it was like, here we go again. And you got, it was dark and you could look and they couldn't see you looking. You know, it was like, Right, here we go. Uh, and sometimes it was like a bit like, oh, it's a real effort. You've got to uh, switch off and deliver, you know. And sometimes it was tough, especially if you were tired or if you were if you were sweating like crazy. But the thing is, it was it was good. And then once you got to to the end, it was that celebratory feel, and it was like, right, done it again. Was, it was quite. Uh, you'd sometimes think, "Why the hell did we uh, write this?" You know. But <laughs> it was, but it was sort of introducing sensitivity, which I brought into playing synthesizers, really from my classical world. So you had to tune in and be that sensitive soul, and that's what the audience wanted. So that's great. I mean, I feel so chuffed to have br- that we're brought in, that we as a band brought in these more sensitive feelings really from classical music. I don't want to make it sound too weird. It's just feeling, that's all, you know, whether it's classical or what. But, you know, when you play the, the, the synthesizer in the in the verse, do, 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 you know, it's you play it with feeling, you know, you have to. You can't just hit the key, otherwise it wouldn't go down very well. You know what I'm saying now? Yeah. And of course, but of course, sorry, I mean, again, credit to me. I mean, bloody hell, coming up with that every night. Yeah, that's big, yeah. Of course, we were playing nice concert halls when we got a hit, but before that, we were playing it quite a lot because we were trying to 
uh, crack of the territory, especially like America again. And we were playing little clubs and it was sweating like you were drowning in sweat. And it's like, how the hell is he singing that? You know, it's tough, tough. It's good. So has your attitude towards the song changed over the years? I mean, um, what is your attitude towards the song now? How do you see it now? Uh, now um, I'm not sure now. Um, it's it's difficult, isn't it, after all these years? Um, I think when it does come up, if I happen to be flicking through music channels, not very often, on TV, and it comes up, you think, oh, yeah, it's nice to hear it because it's different and it's got some power and it is a good video. Yeah, I, I like it. Um and, and sometimes it sounds so incredibly weak to me, and, and you know as well. So it's but then again, I'm cr- too critical. It's because yeah. it's got its um, parts. It's got its uh, the eccentricity of the instruments we were using. You know, um, every time I hear the, the uh, ARP synthesizer in the verse, I think God, I could play it better now. Uh, but the fact that it's played and it sounds like it's literally disappearing just is part of the effect it has. It just seems to draw people in. No, I, I do like it. You know, I like the mix, and I'm very happy. Only Plank, probably more than me, brought that piano octave melody. Dum 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 da 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 da. It's quite high, really. I mean, being the person who played it, I could have been the one to would have pulled it back a bit. It's it's good. You know, it's um, it's got its character. It, you know, it uh, really has. Well, it's more than good, Billy. It's a classic. Oh, I was I was mentioned on the podcast. There's three songs that define the 80s for me, and they were, were "Shout Tears of Fears," "Relax," "Frank Goes to Hollywood," and "Vienna." There's All right, cool. Yeah. What was the first one? Um, "Shout Tears of Fears." Shout, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, we did some early uh, TVs with them before they really when they got that out. Yeah, that was an early hit of Tears for Fears. Yeah, because well, Manny was playing bass for them, and I used to know him from when I lived in Bath. I lived in Bath when I was 21 in 1971 for most of the year. But I didn't actually work with him, but it was amazing to see him playing with Tears for Fears. Ageography, quick fire mound. Pretty much answered the first question. Vienna comes on the radio. Do you leave it, turn it up or turn it off? Oh, well, I won't turn it up. I'll just let it let it uh, go in the context of everything else and just... Well, would you listen to it or just have it on the radio? I would probably listen to it, yeah. Excellent. Do you, do you have a single best live version you performed of it? Where just like everything just felt this is perfect. This is the perfect version. Um, mm, uh, that's a difficult one. I'm a bit dismissive of uh, live performances. It's a bit like once I've played it, it's all from the heart and it's a physical thing. So I'm not really too bothered about listening to it. It's a bit strange. I don't know why. I mean, some people really like live live recordings, but I don't. So no, I don't think I. What have. about while you're performing it? Maybe it's the the atmosphere, the crowd, or where you were. Just everything clicked, and it felt like this is the, the, the perfect version we've done of this song. Sorry, Mark. I've I've just done it. I've done it so many times. They all kind of <laughs> merge into one. I, you know, I mean, obviously the British audience was fantastic with their cheering. So that that I think a performance here would be it's funny i haven't got one that sticks out it's amazing lynn solo from Regin eden i remember playing it at glasgow apollo god when you're up on that really high stage and looking down and seeing these two people this um boy and his girlfriend i think right at the front giving it sort of yeah you know real supportive and i was and i was thinking to myself god they really uh, listened to this album i, I was dead chuffed
I mean, to get to get something that's so a little bit off the wall, people uh, laughing, uh, not laughing, cheering at and stuff, and clapping is is pretty fantastic. But it, I can't think of one. I, I can't think of one in particular of Vienna. Where's the weirdest place you've heard it play? I've heard it played. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's happened uh, a few times. Yeah, and it any elevator versions where you've been in the lift and you thought, "What is that? I recognise that tune." It hasn't been covered. I don't think. Um, I don't remember. You mean cover versions? Oh yeah, like in an elevator or some kind of like. Oh, sorry, in an elevator. Or something. I, I, just... yeah, I will have. I will have. But I just. Um, it's just. Yeah, I, I, that I will. That will have happened, but I can't remember of the specific place again because it's such a long time ago. I'm making excuses now, but when <laughs> it creeps into your reality, it's a little bit wow. But God, that's that's a bit strange. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it does do when it when it's played, you know. I can't remember any specific time. Sorry. Okay, no worries. Who would you most like to cover the song? Um everyone seems to have avoided it. It's it is it's very unusual. I think people big names that have thought about covering it probably think that they're not wearing the boots of the, those band members. I mean the record itself is such a big part of what makes the song great. So you can't really it is, and that is me, uh, what I tend to be like as well. Once it's planted, printed on a, on a record, that's it. I don't want to mess about with it any longer. It was always a little bit difficult, frustrating for me when we played it live, because when I came back off the violin to do the do 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 the descending melody, I always felt it frustrating that I couldn't do two things at the same time. You know, I, because at, at the last couple of bars it's and then there's another piano comes in and those two work together so i always used to be frustrated <laughs> i suppose that's a bit of a classical musician type of hang up uh, that did used to frustrate me a little bit Control freak. I mean, uh, it, I, do, I would have liked to have played the whole thing myself because Midge used to play the string section on on his keyboard. So there's a, sec- a certain bit of uh, megalomaniac coming out here. You know, I mean, I'm handing over my music to the band members, and I God, I sound like an absolute. But so, so it was an okay experience. Don't get me wrong, but mm. it wasn't fantastic. I mean, we never at that early stage added that extra piano part in with a, a session man or an extra player. But um, no, it's, yeah, it's, I'm sorry, Mark, I can't really come up with anything there. The thing is, it, it does keep cropping up in certain places, not not as much now. And you just think, boy, yeah, that's that's me, that is. No, yeah. Let's take that, use the, the keyboard melody for their song. Yeah. yeah. When did you find out about that? Well, that was interesting because... 
dum 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 da 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 dum dum. They took mostly that. Dum 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 da the piano bit. Sings a lot, uh, not like that, but uh, he's taking it from that. That's the thing he's he's feeling, um, Gary Barlow, and uh, I was okay about it. Uh, it's not obvious, uh, and I was okay about it, you know, really, because well, it's uh, money, isn't it, as well? <laughs> but but it was it was it's money, but not really. It wasn't really. I think he was quite respectful, really. I think he could have had a go at trying to just take it, uh, but it, it was very good that he didn't, because I, I, I would have felt that he was pulling away on that, da, 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 you know, but uh, he might have got away with it. But so he wasn't uh, ripping it off entirely, and I thought it was quite respectful, very respectful. It's, a, it's such a clear lift that you couldn't rip it off because it, it's such an integral part of the song. This is kind of the main hook of the song, so... Yeah, he couldn't. Yeah, he did have to come clean, but he did, and that's really they did, and that's really good. Is there anything you'd change about the song, the record? No, not not now, uh, not now, no, um, no, not now. They're one of those things that just jump out, and like I say, what I like about music is it's held in time, like a painting. I, I wouldn't see. Like I'm not that keen on remixes and stuff. I think once you've done it, I'll and that's it. Because I'm a bit of a foreman, really. I like that's it. You've you know, you've used all your energy to, to get to that point and that's the conclusion. So that's it. No, I wouldn't want to start messing about with it again. I mean, like we've got this our stuff on the on the box sets being remixed now by um uh what's his name? Ian Wilson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um uh, and so yeah, it's I mean you've just got to let go, you know, but um Did you like his mixes? Yeah, but I mean it's a bit of a thing where I'm not that uh I don't get into it because uh, that's the thing that was defined at that point. I've not, I've got, I haven't got anything against it, and I can understand Chrysalis doing it because it puts a fresh approach to it uh, on the releases. And I'm pleased that they're doing them, you know, rather than just leaving them. Because I have been with some companies from Chrysalis in the early '80s. It's gone to all sorts of people uh, that haven't looked after it very well, like Warner Brothers. Uh, well, sorry, Warner Music. So I'm. Um, I'm pleased that they're doing it, so I'm not complaining about it. In fact, I went up to his um, studio. He lives just near me. I went up to his studio to listen to particularly the uh, Ascent in Rage in Eden and uh, the rest of the album and talked to him about it, and it was it, I enjoyed it. 
It's not something I'd like to do a lot of, though, you know. No. And finally, three words to describe what Vienna means to you. Well, I mean, it's it's um, it's an expression, getting an expression out from the years that I listened to lots of classical music when I was at music college, from 15 to 19 years old. And I was feel very pleased to have got that out with the Ultravox guys and... Um, uh, and Connie, uh, and the thanks to Connie to put, I mean, it was unusual for me to go into the late 19th century because I prided myself on in, on listening to a lot of modern stuff like I would do with my teens, like Bella Bartok or Arnold Schoenberg or Alban Berg. I was more in the 20th century. So it's quite weird for me to slip into the late 19th century where I did like big symphonies, writers like Brahms and Wagner, Siegfried, and I played in the orchestra. Uh, in Huddersfield uh, as a viola player. So it, it's nice. It means it does mean a lot to me to get these feelings to the, it sounds a bit dramatic, to the masses, mm. you know, so to the people that don't often listen to it, you know, and that, that was the I, that was the idea. I mean, the, the feeling of it being slightly decaying decadence is a very interesting feeling that crept in while we were, while we were mixing, really, rather than before I was putting it down. But I kind of didn't really realise that it was there. But it was there, and, and it was kept it brought out more and more with talking to Connie about it. He just said it sounded like a particular time in Vienna in the late 19th century when Johann Strauss had left the scene and there was this other composer that had stepped in to try and keep people uplifted as things were going wrong with the economy and everything. And, of course, I forgot the name of the guy. We put his picture on the back of the single. I've forgotten the name of him now. God, I always do. But there again, it was a long time ago. He just annoyed everybody because he got too fancy wanting to um, rejoice in the city of Vienna. We're talking about Johann Strauss with the waltzes and stuff. It was a, a kind of a, a decadence, in a way, of good living. So it, Connie play, played this composer tours and I got what he meant and so to some extent it affected the mix so we were doing classical music but we'd put a sort of strange edge to it which was a little bit strange so we were deliberately overplaying so that when I did the violin because I'd been talking to Connie about this I deliberately did more played it in a late 19th century way I did it with a lot of romantic uh, vibrato you know, sort of instead of it being being the feeling of what you would have in Mister X, which was more mid European in the twentieth century, nineteen forty, that chilly feel. It, it it was different. We were getting into a different a different feel, decaying decadence. It was it was a different thing we got into, and I, I was helped along that line. I think with uh, Connie. Yeah, I wish I could remember that composer. Sorry, I might be getting a bit boring now. No, this is great. This is really good stuff. So I will go expressionist decaying decadence is the three words. I think that sounds quite good. Well, it is. <laughs> and then go and being just a little bit over the top with it, you know, yeah. instead of holding back my classicalness, it made me bring it, put it in. So when I was doing the do 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 I was doing it quite, you know, on, on it, on it, really, you know, not not being flimsy, you know, it was like on it, showy. So that so and 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 with with the vocals as well. I mean, it was a, a proper. Uh, what's the word? Um, performance. So Mitch tuned into this as well. I mean, Mitch had his, had his ear to gra- the ground big time because, you know, especially when I went round to Billy's, we're talking about Billy's Club 
Rusty dragged me around there when Ultravox, the 70s lineup, dragged me and uh, Robin Simon around there from the dressing room. You know, this this feeling of, oh, it's all over now. And, you know, it's an horrible, scruffy little dressing room. And uh, Rusty said, come around to this club we've got. And, and when Midge turned up the following week, it was like, oh, hang on, something, it just feels like something's happening here, you know. And he was playing um, craft work. There was a scene developing. It was a very, very exciting time. So this... So when we were doing um, writing Vienna, which is only just a, a couple of months later, January at the beginning of 1980, but I must say it came later when we'd written most of the all the other tracks of Vienna uh, latter part of uh, 1979, and actually toured a lot, mostly in America. So it was the latter part that we could trust ourselves to do something like that. So uh, yeah. Brilliant. That is the end of the interview. So massive thanks to Billy the interview as I said that's part one of three with a two part my 80s ography to come next season uh, it was such a thrill to speak to Billy his music with Ultravox has meant so much to me since I was eight so over 40 years so it was massive to speak to him and I never ever tire of Vienna I don't think I ever will and I hope he doesn't mind how much I played it should have your face but it's one of those examples where you lose the battle and win the war I remember a few years ago there's a UK poll Vienna was voted the best number two single of all time so what's better to be the best number two single of all time or to be one of hundreds of great number ones so yeah what do you think so it wasn't a planned interview so I didn't get to do the research I normally do but more of a seat of your pants kind of thing so I didn't realise until afterwards that in the 90s his third iteration of Ultravox with some different singers he, he did a new version of Vienna and check that out to compare and contrast to me it just highlights why early 80s productions were vastly superior to early 90s ones yeah uh, so I reminded to check out the random questions interview I did with Midge oh, actually there's also um, talking about Vienna you want Midge's take on Vienna then check out the Soda Jerker podcast he did an interview with that where he went through the recording of Vienna with them the writing and recording and that was interesting as well so that's really that's definitely worth checking out so I have one more to edit from last year which is really bad uh, it's a two-parter but I'm, I'm spent I, I need I need to break I think uh, tank is empty kids off school for summer etc so I will get to that next season I want to say a huge thank you to all the guests this season and of course you the listeners uh, everyone who contributed to the podcast um, I'm hugely grateful to you uh, like listener Gareth Williams and his eternal jukebox choices uh, the Word Girls, Gritty Politi, ABBA, The Visitors, very underrated album, The Visitors. And The Flat Earth, Thomas Dolby. And in time, in time, in time. 
choices all. Insert and listener Ronnie Neely, whose choices are PYT, Michael Jackson, Bonnie, Prefab Sprout, and Gouge Away from the Pixies. choice of Michael Jackson. I think many people would pick that as their favourite track from Thriller, so I interesting. Of course, Bonnie is a classic, and you can't go wrong with the Pixies. Good choices. Uh, if you'd like to contribute to the podcast via PayPal, atosography at gmail.com, it's much appreciated, and thanks to those that have already. End of insert. And also, everyone who listened to the podcast, well, it's just one episode here or there, or you listen to them all, I appreciate time you've taken to do that because there's a lot of options out there there's millions of podcasts millions of things to listen to or watch and you chose to listen to to my little effort it's very very humbling thank you listeners like david thank you for what you sent me david really appreciate it appreciate your support as well thank you very much uh in terms of playing out um i think as we alluded to in the interview there's not many great covers of vienna i think it's vienna is one of the examples of a great song but also a great record that most covers don't veer too far from the sound of the record because it's so distinctive and I almost um, chose to play out with a version from the 90s by Mike Batt in the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra that has mid-duron vocals and that's very orchestral and rather lovely Instead, I thought I'd go with something a little different, semi-acapella, from a group called Blue Penguin. So mystic and soulful, bye bye
So I'd like to thank you very much for making us number one in the top up chart. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks. It's good. A voice reaching out in a piercing cry. It stays with you until...